Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the AllInGospel.com website. Okay, 2 Kings chapter 23, and it starts, Moreover, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists, the household gods, the idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book, that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Now before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. So this is kind of nice where we broke last week because that's the summary of what we did last week. I don't have to review and give us context. It's put in a nice, succinct little thing. And Josiah, arguably, if nobody turned to the Lord to the same degree that he did, that means that at some level his heart was in a better place than David, better place than Solomon, better place than Hezekiah. If we take verse 25 at face value, Josiah's quite a guy. Yet what happens between now and the end of the book is it didn't do anything. And I think part of that is you can have a godly leader, but if the people of the land have gone astray, they're going to keep going astray no matter what leader you put in office. And so it comes back to Israel getting judged and now Judah's getting judged because of the heart of the people. It has nothing to do with what individuals in the throne room. They can have a lot of influence and they can allow certain things civically or not. But at the same token, we get this wonderful epitaph on Josiah, but it doesn't seem to do anything even for his own son. And so I think that's something as believers, as we look at the fall of an empire, we got a lot of Christians thinking America, we're in our, we're in the decline as a society and as a culture. And so we can see a lot of parallels here. Um, but at the end of the day, one of the lessons of Josiah is to not necessarily put your hope in what leaders in office. It's better to just turn your heart towards the Lord and trust that that's what God's looking for. No king like him is quite a record. Um, so we do see in Jeremiah that the people don't turn with Josiah. They pay a lot of lip service. Jeremiah 3.10. And yet for all her treacherous sister Judah had not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. And then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. So the way in which the prophets are talking about Judah is not that there was this grand revival. Last week we talked about revival because Judah was doing a ton from the top down. But revival almost always happens from the bottom up. It's not to follow leadership. It's that masses of people turn their hearts to the Lord. And ultimately, this is the, um, the experiment of kings. There's an era of Israel's history where they said, give us a king and then we can follow the Lord. If we only have an example, we can follow. And God told them from the beginning, all this stuff's going to go bad. When your hearts turn away from me, I'm going to remove you from the land, and we'll get into that tonight. All the law of Moses, not his favorite parts, but he submits to the entirety of the word of God. There's nobody that comes after him or before him. Verse 26, nevertheless, 
The Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, with which his anger was aroused against Judah, because of all the provocations which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I'll remove Judah from my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city Jerusalem, which I have chosen, of the house which I said, my name shall be there." Even to this day, Jerusalem's associated with Christianity, Judaism, and even Islam lays a stake to it. To this day, that's a holy city because God called it a holy city. And it's still that sort of thing. Despite Josiah's reform, the hearts of the people don't turn the Lord. He doesn't see that the people follow. Um, Huldah had told him last week that the wrath was still coming. Josiah knows this. The people in that sense had every chance to return to the Lord. They have had no excuses through the era of kings. They've had good kings, they've had bad kings, and slowly but surely, God's ready to just remove them from the land. Josiah dies. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Why, yes, they are. In the days Pharaoh Necho of Egypt went to the aid of the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates, and King Josiah went against him. And Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo when he confronted him. And then his servants moved his body in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Pharaoh Necho, um, Egypt's going up to help protect Assyria. Oddly enough, Assyria has no army. So they're in a, there's an absolute power vacuum that's flowing between what's left over of Assyria, Egypt to the southwest, and Babylon to the southeast. Babylon is going to get a king that rises up who we encounter tonight, and we'll get to him. But essentially, Assyria and Egypt make kind of a deal to try to fend off this rising Babylon. And guess who's in the middle of that triangle? the hill country of Jerusalem. So when they say that they're going all the way to the Euphrates, Egypt can travel up the Gaza Strip and all the way to Assyria without ever getting into the hill country. There's this flat coastal plain in Israel that's like a highway for armies. And so Jerusalem could just mind their own business, but they don't. In these verses, uh, for some reason, Josiah decides to attack Egypt as they're trying to go up and help Assyria. He's told not to by the prophets. And he disregards the prophets. So, and I think this is part of why they gave him that great review in the beginning of tonight. And then they show his mistakes afterwards. They kind of did this with Hezekiah too. Overall, great king. But he had some moments where he didn't follow the Lord. Therefore, he's not the Messiah. Because he did some things where he was disobedient. Um, they take Jehoahaz. We should know when we see that. That... Um, after he's killed and they put him on the throne, he's the fourth uh, oldest child of Josiah. So when we look at Jehoahaz, we need to understand this is not a traditional succession. He's a, he's a popular pick. The people like him, so they, and it words it that way, they take him and put him on the throne and made him king in his father's place. So we're ignoring that rule, and this is important for one reason and one reason alone. After Josiah, the genealogy gets kind of goofy. Because Josiah had multiple sons, and some of them sit on the throne here, and some of them here, and then one of their uncles sits on the throne, and it gets kind of messed up. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, there's a genealogy there, and in verse 11, it just says um, Josiah and his brothers, and it uses the second born, which is Jeconiah, as Jesus' ancestor. 
So after Josiah, there's kind of a cutoff that goes on. And the way Matthew handles that is he ignores everything we're about to read. <laughs> and he just goes, Josiah, Jeconiah, because that's the legit order according to how he does that. So when you see that Jehoahaz is put on the throne, that's not the legit order that it should go in. And this is what Matthew, this is the commentary Matthew makes in chapter 1, is that part of what he's doing there is he's making a very careful reading of these verses, and he's going, hey, this guy didn't just go to the throne because his dad kind of picked him. He went to the throne because the people picked him. Um, and people shouldn't be picking their king. According to the deal they made with God, God was going to put kings on the throne. That said, um, the other reason I think Matthew goes with the secondborn instead of the fourthborn is if you look at Second Chronicles 3, the firstborn of Josiah has no kids. So that's kind of a dead-end path. So the first king that actually has children or inheritance would be um, Jeconiah. That said, we'll get into that more in Chronicles. Verse 31. Jehoahaz tw was 23 years old when he became king. I'm sorry, Jeconiah is the secondborn. Jehoahaz is the fourthborn. Uh, when he became king and he reigned three months in Jerusalem, that would be an extremely short reign. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Now Pharaoh Necho put him in prison at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. So Egypt beats them and then makes them a subservient state. In that sense, Judah, like Israel, loses their sovereignty before they lose the land. Also, we can note, like at this point, why the people might have picked him is that the people weren't on board with Josiah's reforms. So they skip over that second born and even the third born, and they went for one of the, the heirs that they thought would give them all their idol worship back. So Jehoahaz means Yahweh has seized. Um, the name was changed. It was uh, Shalom before, which is a word for retribution. So Jehoahaz is likely the king name that gets assigned to him later on. So Judah loses their sovereignty. Um, and they, it happens roughly the same way that I, uh, Israel lost theirs. Uh, Egypt puts him on the throne for three months. Verse 34, then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, which means God raises up, the son of Josiah, the king in the place of his father Josiah, and changed the name to Jehoiakim, uh, which means Jehovah raises up. And Pharaoh took Jehoahaz and went to Egypt, and he died there. So that's kind of a dead end. So likely with Pharaoh seizing Jehoahaz and Pharaoh raising Eliakim, Pharaoh's actually using that phrase either as a mockery because it's clear that the Pharaoh put Jehoiakim on the throne and by changing his name that's kind of an, a, an act of authority that the Pharaoh's trying to claim power over that and even claim the position. So it's a way to kind of mock the Jewish people. They know darn well Pharaoh put him on the throne, not Yahweh. So jo Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, and, but he taxed the land to give money according to the command of Pharaoh, and he exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land, from everyone according to his assessment, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. And Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Pedaiah. Of Ruma, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. He becomes a puppet leader. Uh, nothing exciting there. 
Um, and he did evil like his father's. So there's not the good side of their heritage, but probably the influence of a long line of sinners coming through, um, of kings missing the mark. And this is the story of kings. The people said, we want to try it this way. We think we can be a holy people. If only you give us kings, the Lord gives them every chance in the world to thrive under that system and even inspires and raises up some good kings. So Jeremiah responds to this evil that's there. And if you look at the book of Jeremiah, he says, thus, therefore says the Lord, according to Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, he shall have no one sit on the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out. That's exactly what happens. Um, so all of this is predicted by God. God tells them what's going to happen. Then it happens. They still don't learn and they still don't repent. Um, and again, that verse 11 in Matthew chapter one reads like this, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. So there's just kind of a reference that that's a major event. According to Matthew, this is 14 generations and there's going to be 14 generations between Babylon and the return to the land. And there's going to be 14 generations between the return of the land and Jesus Christ. So you read math and you're like, oh, this is all laid out. But part of how he gets 14 generations is he took that mess we just read and he said, Josiah to Jeconiah, that's the legitimate transition. And that's when that power of the sovereignty was lost. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years and he turned and rebelled against him. And this is in 605 BC. So we're, we're getting 600 years pre-Christ now. Here's the thing. With Assyria gone, we get Egypt in chapter 23, be making them kind of a vassal state. There's no record of any real challenge or power struggle. Babylon suddenly just becomes, it just says Nebuchadnezzar came up. So Nebuchadnezzar is moving an army around the Middle East um, without any conflict or resistance at all other than Egypt. So this is the first mention we have of Nebuchadnezzar. He's one of the most brilliant military strategists in the history of the world. And even secular historians look at Nebuchadnezzar's reign, his ability to master a battlefield, uh, as one of the, the great changes in world history. This guy is gifted in such a way that you could argue that God even blessed him with military strategies so that he could be the place that, he, that Israel get, or Judah gets taken away to. Clearly, some people are going to get taken away to Egypt. That's not, it's like going back to where they started. It's going right back to the world. Egypt kind of looks like kind of sinful. When we go forward into Babylon, they have trials in Babylon, but they also refine their culture in Babylon. It's actually, if you think about it, they don't come out of Babylon going back to idol worship ever again. They lose their taste for it. So there's something about the discipline of God and his love for the people of Israel that in sending them to Babylon, yes, it's a punishment, but it's also discipline. And it's also helping them to grow up as a people because they don't go back to, to idol worship. And the part of that is Nebuchadnezzar kind of beats it out of them by trying to force them to idolize him. And we'll get to that when we get to that. Either way, at this point in history, there's three invasions. There's the 605 invasion, there's the 597 invasion, and the 587 invasion. 605, 597, 587. Nebuchadnezzar comes rolling through three times. He has to set a governor in place, but whoever the kings, and this happened with Egypt, Egypt puts a king in place, but they just don't have the transportation and communication to reign locally. So it's hard to build an empire. 
So whoever you put in as a governor has to be agreeing to send you your tribute every year. And if the tribute stops coming, you then you have to send your army that way. Well, it costs money to send an army. And everybody was giving their tribute to Assyria, but then suddenly Assyria doesn't have anybody to come collect the tributes. So where do you send the tributes? Nebuchadnezzar's trying to go around and gather these former Assyrian cities and have them send tributes to Babylon instead of Nineveh. So full Babylonian records on all of this, and they concur perfectly with what we see in the word. They're just a little bit more Babylon-centric. Um, but the dates match, the battles match, all of this matches. Um, he was then turned from this place. So he turned and rebelled against him. The problem with Jehoiakim is he actually isn't recognizing Babylon as a world power because at this point they're not. Nebuchadnezzar's largely unknown at this point. He had some victory against Egypt, but he is not the reigning terror of Assyria yet. So when you get a small little city-state like Jerusalem refusing to send tribute, they're basically saying, go ahead and make me. And Nebuchadnezzar does. This is what he does extremely well. Verse 2. And the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans. That just means from the area of Chaldea, which is Babylonians. They just called them Chaldeans. Uh, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, bands of the people of Ammon. Part of being a vassal state is when the new king tells you to go attack somebody, you have to just send your army to do it. And so Nebuchadnezzar not only demanded tribute from his vassals, he demanded that they would attack where they want. This is kind of brilliant. Because now he can send out raiding bands wherever he can play the world like a chessboard. And he's got little stations of people everywhere that are supposed to go fight for him when called upon. And if they don't fight for him, he comes and he wipes them out. He's known for his cruelty later on in his life and in his reign. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servants, the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all he had done, and also because of the innocent blood that he had shed, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. You don't get to stay in Jerusalem. Had a little bit of mercy with Josiah, but it's time to move him out. So the writer here isn't elevating Babylon as a rising power, but I hope you notice between verse 2 and verse 4 that Yahweh is used four times. The writer is making it very clear to us, God did this. So it's easy to look at world history and think, well, that's the Babylonians doing all of this. Um, but the writer of Kings doesn't phrase it like that. They don't look at it like this. All of these things are because God has lifted his blessing from the land. And there's even a sense that he actually encouraged or blessed Babylon to be able to rise and do this. Um, so verse 2 is just the raids and the trouble. There's no rest for them. Um, and then his servants come up, the prophets. Um, it seems a particular season of history where we see Isaiah, Jeremiah, lots of documentation that through all of these raids, there's prophets going to the king saying, stop this, don't do this, do that. And he's not listening to him in part because if Jehoiakim listened to the prophets of God, he would have simply submitted to Babylon and sent the, the, the tariff or whatever. Um, he also has, it also says the sins of Manasseh, um, this cutoff line, still part of the house of David, but it's a line in the house of David that's not going to go through and be part of the messianic line. That's exactly how Matthew treats it. So what's going on right now between Israel, as far as God's concerned, Israel kind of ended with Josiah. 
and and there is a lineage that goes on, but the Lord's not going to pardon Manasseh. He's not going to pardon those sins, um, and they and, and that's what happens. So now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim rested with his fathers, and then Jehoiachin his son rested in his place. So there's lots of records that document where the body is. <laughs> um, there is a Jeremiah twenty two nineteen says he shall be buried with the burial of an ass drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. So there's this idea that he's um, he rested with his fathers, but it doesn't necessarily say that he was buried with his fathers. So part of that is when Jehoiakim's done with his reign, they basically take his body and they throw it out. They toss it out in disgrace. And they let his body kind of roll down the hill. As a propped up king that Egypt put in place, now rebelling against Babylon and utterly failing, he's not a well-loved king, uh, if he's even a king at all. Verse 7 says, And the king of Egypt did not come out of his land anymore, for the king of Babylon had smacked him down. Um, actually, it says that King of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the King of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. It's one of the great battles in, in history. Nebuchadnezzar um, absolutely dominating the Egyptian army. They thought it was an even fight. Um, it was a fairly even fight by historical records. Nebuchadnezzar simply outsmarted the Egyptians. So it's a fun battle to look up when you look at military strategy. We get Nebuchadnezzar then kind of showing up in the Bible. He's one of the most mentioned Gentiles in the Bible. He's the only Gentile in the Bible that actually has written a portion of the Bible. There's a whole chapter that Nebuchadnezzar wrote. Um, he has dreams that God speaks to Nebuchadnezzar. God uses Nebuchadnezzar, which is a weird thing because God's working through these prophets all the time, and he's okay to use a Gentile to do his work. And as a Gentile, I like that. I like that God can use a stone if he wants to. It's not how important we are, it's how important God is and who God's going to use. So, Nebuchadnezzar, and we only know how to pronounce Nebuchadnezzar because we hear it in Sunday school growing up. Like, if you really look at that name, that's a tough name to pronounce. But we just, it rolls off our tongue because he's, he's pretty famous. And in my head, I can't not see a giant cucumber Nebuchadnezzar from VeggieTales, right? But I'm sure he didn't look like that and he probably wasn't green. Verse 8, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehusha, Nehushta, the, the daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all his father's done. You look off all the names and they're boring. There's nothing in the names. And you know what? Verses 8 and 9, there's nothing in his kingship that's of value. In fact, it's, it's almost dismissed and cast aside. Uh, but... He's reigning in Jerusalem these three months. And the reason it's three months is because it, 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 it gets ended quickly. Um, many times I mention mistakes in the Bible. We have arrived at one such mistake in the Bible. If you shall call it a mistake. Here it is. Verse 8 says, Jehoiachin was 18 years old. If you look at 2 Chronicles 36.9, it will say 8 years old. That is the difference of a 1 that should be in there. Now, here's the other problem. People would say, well, then the two books don't agree with each other. That is what we call an error in the Bible. However, most scholars believe somebody just forgot to put a one in or the one got wiped out at some point in history. 
And as translators would transcribe, they would add those in. If you look at Hebrew, Syriac, and Arabic versions of Kings, they, or Chronicles, they actually have 18 there, not an 8. So it's only some of the ancient texts that have an 8 there and not all of them. So it depends on how much you want to stake your faith on a missing one on some of the translated scripts. But I will admit and confess we've arrived at one of those points where if you look at our current translation of the Bible, you have identified and found one error in translation in the Bible. I would not worry about the solidity of the Bible as a text for that single one or that mark. I would, however, put out a version that fixes it, which it's that's really hard to do in the Christian world because we don't like changing the Bible. So when we have a text that's been with us for 15, 1600 years, we kind of stick with it. Um, but in this particular case, again, in three different languages, it's 18, and, and here it's 18 in the book of Kings. Attack number two. That was the first attack of Babylon. Attack number two. At the time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, his officers, went out to the king of Babylon, and the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner. I like this is great. This is why you send messengers out to deal with the other army. He actually goes out himself, and Nebuchadnezzar's like, well, thanks for just offering yourself up as my slave. And he takes him prisoner. Um, so I don't. Nebuchadnezzar didn't play by the rules all the time. And in this particular case, um, either they just didn't have a capacity to fight, or Nebuchadnezzar was just took advantage of of their naivety. Right? He's only twenty something years old. Let's give him a break in that sense. Um, but there's no note of any real battle. He surrounds the city, um, and he takes him prisoner. And so he takes him prisoner. But it looks like the entire royal court is with him. He just puts them all in shackles, hauls them off to Babylon. You're done. And so he's going to put his own person there. So he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut the pieces all, uh, cut in pieces all the articles of gold, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord. As the Lord had said, again, the Lord predicted all of this. The writer of Kings wants us to know this. The Lord said this would happen and it happens. Verse 14, also he carried into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths. Take the people that know how to do things. None remained except the poorest people of the land. So in this group of 10,000 people, Daniel is in that group. Ezekiel is in that group. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in that group. So we have these people that were educated, that were um, technical skills, the craftsmen. Um, and we should note that in that group, there is a small godly remnant of people that are living according to the Lord and they're not going to bend. And so they are being told by the prophets to submit. It could be that that's the reason that Jehoiachin just goes out and submits himself and is taken prisoner is because he had some prophets telling him to do that. He also had, according to Jeremiah, a boatload of false prophets telling him to fight it out, which is going to be the third attack. So all the articles, it's interesting that they list these articles. Um, it doesn't include two articles when we see the list. And, and, and I want you to tune into this as we read. There's two missing articles. Um, so see if you can tune into that. Um, 
Second Maccabees chapter two, verse four, we don't often read Maccabees, but there's an interesting passage in there that says, it was also in writing that the prophet having received an article ordered that the tent and the ark should follow him and that he went out to the mountain where Moses had gone up. That's the Mount Sinai. And where he had seen the inheritance of God. And Jeremiah came and found a cave, and he brought there a tent and the ark and the altar of incense, and he sealed up the entrance. Not in the word of God, but there's a reference in Maccabees that Jeremiah is just sick of being a prophet. So he grabs the ark of the covenant and the incense altar, and the lampstand's not mentioned, and he heads down to Sinai, finds a cave, seals himself inside of it, and we never see him again. So if you want to go looking for the Ark of the Covenant, that is one possible location. Of course, we all know it's in a pit of snakes somewhere outside of Cairo, right? Okay. Um, but it creates a mystery and a legend. And the Bible doesn't mention what happens to the Ark, but this is the spot where the Ark would get lost or it got hidden. Some people believe that there's a secret compartment under where the temple was that's about half a mile down under the the temple mount and that the ark has been sealed into a secret vault underneath the temple mount. That's an odd theory, but they did have Hezekiah's tunnel. We know Hezekiah liked to dig under that hill and did some amazing digging down there, some absolutely feats of engineering kinds of digging. So who's to say there isn't a secret compartment? Another theory is that Solomon was very good friends with um, the queen of Sheba, which is in Africa. So some people think that there could have been a deal or a, a long-lost relationship at this point. And when Egypt was getting beat up, part of what, the, what they did is they were able to move the ark down through Egypt and get it down into Sheba. Third location if you want to go adventuring looking for the lost ark. But this is where the ark gets lost. Verse 15. And I didn't make any, any quotes from Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I was tempted. And he carried Jehoiachin captive to Babylon, the king's mother and the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land. And he carried them into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon, just like God said was going to happen. All the valiant men, 7,000 craftsmen and smiths, 1,000, all who were strong and fit for war. Again, Babylon would have his, the countries that he had conquered. They had fighting forces of their own, and he sent them out to do battle. These kings of Babylon brought captive. These the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. And then the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Not, not an heir of the line, right? So now we're going backwards on the line. And again, Matthew just skips all this. Um, Zedekiah means the Lord is righteousness. Um, likely Nebuchadnezzar had read and appreciated the prophets. So we have evidence that Nebuchadnezzar believed in Yahweh. He knew Yahweh was there. He was just believed in other gods too. So there is a level of respect here as Nebuchadnezzar renames him, the Lord is righteous. It could also be a knock where, again, just like Egypt, Babylon showing its authority over the people because if I can rename you, I have authority over you. It's kind of, you know, outside of nicknames, it's just a weird thing that somebody would say, and now your name's going to be called this, and they use the Lord is righteousness as the name. And maybe Nebuchadnezzar is realizing that he is the arm of God here. And that the Israelites are going to lose their land because they're told to. So we don't know that the prophets aren't talking to Nebuchadnezzar from the first removal. It could be Ezekiel was writing his prophecies and Nebuchadnezzar was reading them. And so we see a lot of that. So he changes his name, an act of authority. 
uh, an act of ownership or an act of friendship. You know, that you, that's where we get nicknames from. The idea here, though, is that Israel's now a province of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar is trying to make that very clear. Your, I've put, I've put my governor now on the throne, and you have a chance to do it. So Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. Again, young, impressionable, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he also did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, and he finally cast them out from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Again, no reason given. Just 11 years later, he decides to not pay the tribute again. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar hasn't come by recently. Maybe he thought, you know, he could get away with it. Nebuchadnezzar's, you know, getting middle-aged at this point. Um, but just bad counsel. And again, we see from Jeremiah that Jer what part of Jeremiah's issue was there were more and more false prophets telling the king what to do. And Jeremiah was saying, God is telling you to submit to Babylon. You've lost your authority. Just send the tribute and do your thing. So really the concluding action of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings is in verse 20. He finally cast them out. He, they're done. This is it. Uh, and, and what's left behind, and I think we should note this, are the simple working class people. So if you're a farmer... None of this affects you. You can just keep farming. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't see a farmer as a threat to his rule. So the worship of Yahweh likely continued in this land for some time because there were still people that were godly and people that wanted to serve God. They just didn't have a temple anymore. So what did they do? They had to go back to other forms of worship, like back with Melchizedek. Right? So they had to kind of go to local God worship and, and honor that. But it's important to note that even though all of Israel is getting cast to Babylon, they make a very particular note that the poor people were left behind. So poor financially in earthly sense, but maybe rich spiritually because they didn't have to endure this transplant. They got to live in their houses. And so we have another evil here where Zedekiah rebels. There's confusion, there's disorder, there's false prophets. Um, and Jere Jeremiah notes that because of the false prophets, um, that Zedekiah thought he would win this battle. Okay, let's get inside Zedekiah's head. It's reasonable to think that as Babylon's surrounding the city, that God's going to save us again, right? Hezekiah thought that with the Assyrians, and 185,000 dead Assyrians were there the next morning. So, they're thinking back to their history, and Zedekiah's got false prophets telling him, God says to fight Babylon. You can do it. God's with you. And, and Zedekiah's just getting bad advice. And this is part of the curse of God on the nation. This is when God lifts his hand. You get puffed up people claiming that they speak for God, and they give bad direction, bad instruction. And so instead of submitting, Zedekiah fights. He's maybe thinking God's going to show up just like God did with Hezekiah and save this singular city again. Uh, and that doesn't happen. The Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. We get attack number three. Okay, let's say this too. This is another thing to note. When Zedekiah made his vow to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar demanded of him that he make his vow under the Yahweh's supervision. Swear by your God. So Nebuchadnezzar was a clever tactician. He knew the Jews were kind of stubborn about their Yahweh. So he made Zedekiah swear an oath that he would give fealty to him. Um, but it wasn't swearing to Nebuchadnezzar. It was swearing to Yahweh. So at the end of 
24, when Zedekiah rebels against Babylon, he's actually breaking his oath under God that he made to Nebuchadnezzar to be a, to be a servant or a vassal state. So it's interesting. So he breaks his oath. Nebuchadnezzar isn't having any of it, not from this peon that he put on the throne. He's not going to do that. So this time, time number three, Nebuchadnezzar comes back, and this time he's not interested in having a vassal state. Nebuchadnezzar at this point in history has got a reputation for being a vicious, like he's for complete and total control of the region and everything that he surveys. He called himself the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He was the overruler of the world, is what Nebuchadnezzar thought of himself. So at this point, you get a peon little city-state refusing to pay their tribute. He's gave him, he gave him one warning, he gave him two warnings, and now he's not coming back for warnings. He's coming back to dismantle the city and end this part of the world. And so, that's what happens. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month. Okay, we're getting great, accurate historical records at this point. We're getting very close to when this book gets written. That Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. Um, This is the first time in the Bible that we see a Gentile dating system get used. Prior to this, it was always against an Israel or Judah king when they dated things. But now it's against the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, in part because God has given Nebuchadnezzar authority over the Israelites. And so it's accurate to say, if we're writing this from God's perspective, that it's now according to Nebuchadnezzar's reign, another reason why Matthew simply skipped these kings. And they built a siege wall against it all around. And so the city was besieged until the 11th month of the year. That's a year and a half siege. It's a long time. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people in the land. If they would have just submitted, they wouldn't be starving to death right now. They would just be getting ruled by Babylon. That was it. That was their loss. So Nebuchadnezzar uses a release siege is what it's called. Um, The way Nebuchadnezzar would siege, typically you surround the city, nobody gets out, nobody gets in, you starve them to death, right? Nebuchadnezzar did a released siege. Anybody who wants to leave can come join the army or leave. So he pitted the people of the city against themselves. If you want to walk out of that city and surrender, you can surrender and you can have a nice meal. And after a year and a half of not eating, that starts to look really tempting. But we should note this because this is God's judgment. In God's judgment, anybody that wanted to submit to the teachings of Jeremiah would walk out that door and surrender to Nebuchadnezzar because that's what God was telling them to do through Jeremiah. So there were likely a number of people that left Jerusalem and did that. And, and that the idea was Nebuchadnezzar wanted to pit these people against each other because a fight costs money and time and lives. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted to reign. He didn't want to just slaughter people. He wasn't a Syrian by nature. So also he gives the army a place to live. Uh, they are sitting on the crossroads of the world when they sit in this part of the world. Jerusalem in the hill country stands over that Gaza Strip. And so by camping his army here for a year and a half, it makes strategic sense. He can keep an eye on Phoenicia. He can keep an eye on Egypt. And he can look north and keep uh, his eye on another empire that's starting to rise, which is the Macedonian Peninsula. We call them the Greeks. And so Nebuchadnezzar can keep an eye on these three kind of world powers, and he can move very quickly with his army in any direction from this spot. So it's a nice place to camp. 
and there's some good olive trees there, and they can get some figs. Jesus did. And then the city wall was broken through, and all the men of war fled at night by way of the gate between two walls. Nebuchadnezzar would let you run. Okay, go survive in the wilderness, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were still encamped all around the city. And the king went by the way of the plain. They all run. So the biblical account actually agrees with the Babylonian account in how Nebuchadnezzar would do these sieges. So even though they're all around the city, people could just run and leave. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king. <laughs> this is personal. They overtook him, and I love this, on the plains of Jericho. Where did Israel start? Plains of Jericho. Where is Israel going to end? The one guy that thinks he still has a kingdom is going to run as far as he can, and the the mighty army of Israel, the army mighty nomadic people of Israel coming in to take Jericho, we're going to end with the sputtering out of a single guy that won't submit. So here we are, the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. Nobody left. And they took the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. The last thing he sees before his die, dies are his own kids getting killed. There will be no kinship through there. But as Matthew pointed out, we're not concerned with Zedekiah's line. That's a sputtered, that's the uncle of a line. That's not the line of the Messiah. And so this dead end for Zedekiah is in part because his line was never promised. Ezekiel 12, 13. I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of Chaldeans, the last Zedekiah, yet he shall not see it, though the others shall die there. Here's the thing. Every little piece of this was predicted and prophesied. When we get to Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all of this was told what was going to happen. It, the only reason you don't pay attention to that is because you're listening to false prophets. But God, through his true prophets, were giving all the information needed. So even the idea that he's going to go blind to Babylon was predicted. And, in the, and Nebuchadnezzar would like keep him in the throne room like a pet, and this was just a practice back then. Like, if you want to see people that challenge me, look at that guy over in the cage that I make eat out of a bowl on the floor. That's what happens to people that defy me. So they were used as like an object lesson when you had these defiant kings. So again, if he would have just been a vassal, he could have kind of lived in Jerusalem and done his thing. It just wouldn't have been called Judah anymore. It would have been called Babylon. And in the fifth month of the seventh day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebzuradan. Okay, so Nebzuradan may be a title, not a name. Uh, it's the captain of the guard. The, the word actually means chief slaughterer. Like, he's the head butcher for the country. But he seems to be a general, which makes you think that this particular unit of the military was not a friendly one. So the chief butcher shows up. A servant of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. Hi, I've arrived. I'm on the job. What would you like me to do? And he follows the orders of King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 9, he burns the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. That is, all the houses of the great he burned with fire. So let's get this clear. He leveled everything. So you got a nice city on a hill. Now it's just a hill. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. Nothing left. Archaeology today, the walls of Jerusalem were just thrown into the valleys. You can dig all of this up. The only thing that was even left in part was the Milo. 
There's a little X section in the Milo that they didn't take apart, but you could argue that was just a support wall. So they take all the walls down around it, but they leave kind of the, the platform that's up there. This is important because the walls coming down and the temple coming down, when they do come back into the land, Ezra and Nehemiah, that's what they start working on. They rebuild the walls, they rebuild the temple. Um, but this idea that there's no houses, there's no place to live. In other words, this city is done. And that's just Nebuchadnezzar making a point. Like there's not going to be rebellion from Jerusalem anymore because there will be no more Jerusalem. So, and this speaks loudly to everyone under the control of Nebuchadnezzar. It's going to create the Babylonian Empire, uh, which is still part of what we study in history. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away the captive, the rest of the people who remained in the city, and the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon with the rest of the multitude. So he's there to take home everybody else. He's hauling them all back to Babylon. So it also note that it points out the people of Jerusalem. And remember, the people that were in Jerusalem were people challenging Babylon because anybody who wanted to leave could leave. But the captain of the guard left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. If you're a simple person just tending the land, you got left alone in this whole thing. The destruction of the world. But these people can just keep being doing their vining and making wine and sending it in. And it doesn't make a difference to them if they send it in to a king of Israel or a king of Babylon. But they're still going to do their job. And this is part of where I think, like, we don't need to be troubled about prophecy and end times. If you're serving the Lord, the Lord's protecting you. And he seems to guard the simple folk here. And the reason for that could be that the simple folk are honoring Yahweh in their day-to-day -day life. It's the city folk that have an issue with God and want to do all these weird things. So this also, verses 11 and 12, we should note that there's a parable of Jesus where he talks about the vineyard and the master going away for a time and having stewards of it take care of it before the master comes back. We should note that in Israel's history, this is an extremely real thing. This happened on every one of these plots of land, according to Joshua, they were given to a family. And so for the Jewish people, when they returned to Israel, all the masters of the land would come back and reclaim their land from the vine dressers. So when Jesus is telling that parable, it's not like a hypothetical. There was likely a lot of people that had great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers that were either stewards or landowners in Israel. So it's an extremely, like... A big part of their history is that you'd have the master that got taken away that then came back after a season to find their vineyard in good shape. Or if they had lazy workers, their vineyard was a mess. And so the master would react to that vine keeper in those various ways. Verse 13, the bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord and the carts of, and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Kalians broke in pieces and carried their bronze to Babylon. The stuff doesn't matter. It's just a symbol of God's love. And if they don't love God, then break it apart, take it apart. Here's the, here's the other thing with verse 13. Bronze is not the kind of metal you haul by hand hundreds of miles back home. It's a common metal. It's not hard to make. And it's bronze. You just melt it down and use it where you're at. You don't pick it up and move it. By Nebuchadnezzar taking these particular objects, breaking them in pieces and hauling them back to Babylon, he's making a point. This isn't gold and silver, right, where there's value in, in, in itself. This is bronze. This is what you made soldiers' weapons out of, right? It was common and usable. So by taking those particular pieces back to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's just erasing things. This is personal. So they took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, 
the spoons. They took away the spoons. Again, like what they're doing here is itemizing everything, just like when they made it under Solomon, where we got everything itemized, what they made. It's just reversing everything minus a couple objects. All the bronze utensils, which were with the priests ministered, the fire pans, the basins, the things of solid gold, of solid silver, the captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, this is the giant columns outside on either side of the door of the temple. The two pillars, one sea and the one carts, at which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord. The bronze of all of these articles was beyond measure. Tons of it. The height of the pillar was 18 cubits, and the capital on it was bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits, and the network and the pomegranates all around the capital were all of bronze. Do you feel like you're back in the Torah when they were building all this. The second uh, pillar, which was the same with a network. All of this is itemized in Jeremiah 52. He goes through every single thing. And the point of all of this is that Babylon took everything, right? Um, with a couple things missing. We don't see mention of the incense altar, prayer, image of prayer. And we don't see the Ark of the Covenant, which is God's covenant with his people. Those two things aren't taken by Babylon. They're special. They get set aside. We don't know how they're set aside or where they went, um, but we know that they're gone at this period of history. They just disappear, poof. Um, but there's a very detailed record here of what was taken, and that is the glaringly most important object of that whole symbolic system that is not taken away. I would read that symbolically as God still loves his people, and they can still pray. That's the things that are left when things get tough. And then the captain and the guard took Sariah, Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. And he also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of the war. Five men of the king's close associates were found in the city, like people hiding out that they didn't get the first time. They're just scoured. Like when you burn down every single house, somebody comes out. And so these are the people they found hiding out in Jerusalem the chief recruiting officer of the army, like that's, you'd think he would be more courageous. You think of a recruiting officer as that strong iron jawed guy that inspires the willingness to serve. He's hiding. Who mustered the people of the land. 60 men of the people of the land were found in the city. So Nebuchadnezzar, captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Rabblah in the land of Hamath civic execution. This Judah was carried away captive from its own land. We should note Babylon is much more controlled and meticulous than Assyria. They're systematic and there's a rule of law under Nebuchadnezzar. You did not go doing things on your own. You did everything according to the word of Nebuchadnezzar. So you don't got this mouth of Sennacherib spouting stuff off all willy-nilly. This is a very intentional thing. There's a rule of law. In fact, of all the ancient empires that you would have to get sent off to or carried away to, Babylon's not a bad place. Nice weather, nice gardens, I've heard. And when you go there, there's a certain, if you follow the law, you're fine. If you live under the law, you're in good shape. And so I don't want to build up Babylon as just this great place because it's not a godly place, but at least it's a place that has a rule of law. Notice that the chief slaughterer doesn't do the slaughtering. He hauls the people off, brings them before Nebuchadnezzar. There's a hearing. 
They're beaten and they're killed. This looks a lot like an execution. It doesn't look like murder and slaughter. So it's, an, it's just an interesting way that this happens and how they do this. But it's almost like we look at ba- our first glimpse of Babylon is civic rules and details that are given that look a lot more like what Israel should have looked like if they just followed God's law where you don't just do things however you want to. You do it under the law. So Judah was carried away captive from its own land. That's 860 years of Israel from King Saul to now. Done. And so this is a major era of the Bible that we've just completed. And Judah was carried away captive from its own land is, is almost like the thing. We have kind of some epilogues left in the book. But this is, it's almost like finishing the Torah, right? When you, when we get done with Joshua, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, that's just another chunk of Israel's history taken care of. And so the thing is, we're going to stay in this chunk for a while because we got the prophets to work through that are doing all these warnings. You got Chronicles, which pretty much tells the same story all over again with a different angle to it. And so God, for some reason, wants us to see this period of history. It's important to God that when we read his word, we read about what happened here, how it happened, and how God conducted himself. So we have to put things together. We actually have to study. I like this. For us to notice that God's a good God, it's important that when judgment happens, we understand that that judgment was fair, that people had every chance and every warning to obey, and that they willfully disregarded God. Because humans like to paint a picture where we look pretty good. Well, we did everything we could, and God was so mean and harsh to us. But that's not the case with Israel and Judah. They're given every chance. They're even given Josiah, this inspired leader, the best king possible at the very end. And right after he's gone, they just do whatever they want to do. And they go right back to idol worship. So there's a heart of the people that are gone. It's not just the fault of the kings. It's the people that get the consequences. And there seems to be some individualization as to some are taken and some are not. And so that consequence seems to be fairly individualized. This is not like the flood. This is God doing precision judgment in this situation. So I think that what happens is the people of Israel are gaining faith. The ones that are godly right now are hearing from the good prophets and they're seeing it come true. And all they're learning in all of these situations is those people are lost in idolatry, just like Israel was lost in the wilderness and it's weak and there's nothing to it. But the people of God that are sticking to God would see this as just this cold, conclusive piece of history where the era of kings just didn't work. And it was never going to work. God predicted that it wouldn't work. So you had the era where he's trying to just deal with families, Abraham. Then he gives them the law, tries to deal with a nation, Moses. Then they're like, no, 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 you got to raise up judges to lead the way. He gives them an era of judges. That fails too. And then you get the, oh, well, we need a king. We need somebody with authority. Okay, you're going to do this, but that's going to fail. So that's going to fail too. And now they get an era where they are in exile. They don't get to rule over themselves. Somebody like Nebuchadnezzar is going to rule over them. And Nebuchadnezzar gives them a place if only they play by his rules and they're not Yahweh's rules. But at least they're rules. At least there's some order to it. So then he made, this is interesting, then he made Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, governor over the people who remained in the land of Judah. 
<laughs> so he's not governor over Jerusalem. He's just governor over this region. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, left. Like, I'm done with this. Okay, let me just take care of it. Now I'm going to go. Verse 23, now when all the captains of the armies, they and their men heard that the king of Babylon made Gedaliah governor, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, Jonathan, the the, or Johanan, the son of Kariah, Sariah, the son of Tanhumeth, of the Nethaphantite, and Jahazaniah. And you've never heard any of these names because this is likely the poor people. These aren't the big named families of Israel. We haven't seen these names before. The son of the Maakathite, they and their men. And Gedaliah took an oath before them and their men and said to them, Don't be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and all shall be well with you. This is exactly what Jeremiah said they should have done back with Zedekiah. Just let Babylon rule over you. You've lost the land. You can just keep living your lives, but you're not going to control it. Gedaliah is a godly guy. We know he's mentioned. He's a friend of Jeremiah. He gets put in this position. Nebuchadnezzar seems to be honoring the god of this land, in putting Gedaliah in a position because Gedaliah is not going to revolt because God's saying not to. So by putting a fairly godly guy on the throne, Nebuchadnezzar is not trying to fight Yahweh at this point in history. He will later, but right now he seems to be working with Yahweh. It's really interesting. This is not Assyria. So serve the king of Babylon and it should be well with you. It's the same thing that Jehoiakim was told, same thing Zedekiah was told. Sometimes God tells his people to deal with the government they live with. We get lots of conversations about government. There are points in the Bible where, where God's people rebel. There are points in the Bible where God gives a command like this. Serve the king of Babylon. Like, this is who you're under? Serve them. And at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is not asking them to deny God or skip worship time. They can still practice their religion under Nebuchadnezzar. And as far as God concerned, that's great. So in, this, in the same way, we don't see the early Christians rebelling against Rome. Because they could meet in a house and study God's word, and Rome was fine with that. Until Nero, then they weren't fine with that. And that's when Rome started to disintegrate. So God would rather wipe out Egypt than not have his people go worship him. So it's when God's people are threatened in that way that that's going to be a problem. That's the premise of Habakkuk. We're going to get to Habakkuk eventually. Habakkuk's question is, how can God possibly use Babylon as an instrument of his will? Babylon's an evil empire. How could God use an evil empire to do his work? And so that question, if you like those mental gymnastics, there's the book of Habakkuk that answers that question. And just so you know, it's there. It turns out that when people reject God, defy God, and mock God, that God just says, okay, I'll leave you alone. And that's kind of Habakkuk. God's a gentleman. He's not going to force himself on a people. But when the people rise up and call out for God and call on his name, he promises he'll come back and be their God. And so that's always been the promise. And even if you look at the promises of Jeremiah that in our era, there will be God will himself come and be our salvation. And you'll put the law of God on our hearts. And anyone who calls on the name of God can be saved. We live under the same promises that Jeremiah was making to them at this time in history. Don't worry about Babylon. You're not, we're not about the kingdoms of this world. And this is where Jesus starts teaching about kingdoms. It doesn't matter who rules over us when it comes to civic, secular government. What matters is your heart and who you serve, and God's going to take care of you. And he's going to bless you in doing that in a very spiritual way. So if you want life without the covering of God, God's a gentleman. He'll let you have that life. 
Um, if you want the covering of God's blessing and his promise and his joy in your heart, he's a gentleman. He'll help bring that blessing into your life. But it happened in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishima, the, of the royal family, woo-hoo, came with ten men and struck and killed Gedaliah, the Jews, as well as the Chaldeans, who were with them at Mitzpah. It is crazy because they're just seeing him as a Babylonian sympathizer, and the Jews kill him for it. So you got these infights, and all the people, small and great, the captains of the armies, arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. Okay, if you want to be in exile, Egypt is not the place to do it. It wasn't back in Genesis, and it's not during this period of history. You go to Israel, you are a poor, destitute immigrant. You are living off the, the best you can off the scraps of that nation. Egypt has always been a hierarchic emperor until they get wiped out. But you don't want to be in Egypt for this. It's amazing that they go back to Egypt. So you had the first crew that got taken by Egypt. You got another crew that went off to Babylon. You got a second wave that went to Babylon. You got a third wave that went to Babylon. And now you get these poor people that are so hateful of Babylon that they would rather live in Egypt than live in their own hometown. And Bethlehem would have been a little hometown that some of these people were in. Um, but they were so against living under Babylonian rule that they kill the king and then they run off because you kill the king Nebuchadnezzar put in place, Nebuchadnezzar's going to come back and get you. So instead of waiting for that to happen, they run off to Egypt. And then we get a little glimpse of life in Babylon. Verse 27. Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah. Remember, this is who Matthew goes to. In the 12th month of the 27th day of the month, um, that Evel, it's not evil, it's pronounced Evel, so don't get all excited about that. Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, released Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, from prison. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar lets him out of prison. Says, okay, you can just kind of live your life. You're released and, and do what you please. So here's this heir to the throne of Judah, but there's no more Judah. So the throne of David is just there, survives this whole disaster, and there is a line of David that's still active and living, and he can get married and have kids and do his thing. So it seems like life in Babylon's not so horrible, um, at least at this point. Nebuchadnezzar's going to get weird, and Daniel has some issues with him. But Daniel sets up a university in Babylon. He becomes one of the cheap people in the state. This is the thing that Nebuchadnezzar did well. He didn't destroy the people he conquered. He didn't belittle them like Assyria did. He raised them up and made them part of his empire. This is what the Romans do. This is, frankly, what America has done. Right? We're not there to conquer. We're there to just simply get the wealth we want from those places. It's a very secular way to rule. So the Jewish tradition notes that Evel Merodach, a man of Merodach, nothing fancy there, was likely thrown in jail um, because um, Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to deal with this guy. So when Nebuchadnezzar dies and Evel Merodach becomes king of Babylon, he gets out of prison, but he had a good best friend in prison, which was Jehoiachin. It's likely that they made friends in prison, just like, just like, frankly, like Joseph made friends with the butler, the baker, and the candlestick maker. And eventually that gets him out of prison. It's another story. Jewish tradition notes that they, they met in prison together, they became friends, and so as events would have it, um, life in Babylon for the Jews gets okay. Jeremiah also says to them, make yourselves happy because you're going to be here for a couple, you're going to be here for 70 years. 
So build your houses, plant your gardens, make yourself at home. The people that went to to Babylon actually got to live their lives. They just do it outside the land. The punishment was you don't get to be in the promised land. But there wasn't torture going on. The people that went to Israel, I got to think, didn't have it so well. Like there was probably a lot worse going for them. So he spoke kindly to him, gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So the Israeli king gets a prominent seat at court. And Jehoiachin changed from his prison garments and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given to him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. He lives a happy life. It's just not in the Holy Land. So I just see mercy. I see God. The punishment is very exact. It's not that God's wrathful beyond what needs to get done. And they were not his representatives in the promised land. So they get parsed out. And those that resist submitting to Babylon are likely killed by Babylon. Those that don't resist and surrender themselves to the judgment of God, God has mercy on them. And they actually live a pretty good life with an allowance. Like that's not so bad. And so we see this kind of beginning of their time in Babylon, this end there, huge cutoff point. Um, and we get a humane treatment, and that note is made at the very end of the book of Kings, and they were treated well. So when we see Jehoiakim being treated like that, he was in a position to advocate for the Jews in Babylon during this season. And so we'll get a sense that there's this time in prison that actually does good things for the character of, of Jehoiachin. And so it also does good things for some of the other people. But this is really similar to Joseph, David, Esther, people living under a bad king, figuring out how to be blessed by God in that environment. And the Jews are going to go through that process. Um, There is a natural consequence to breaking a covenant with God. And the natural consequence is God will, if he doesn't deal with it, it's like he didn't make, he's not keeping his end of the bargain. But when you make a covenant with God and you say, my life is based on this covenant, then you keep it. And so we see this when God makes covenants, humans break it, and there's a consequence for breaking it. You've staked your life. There's a life that's been given for that covenant. So when at the end of the Kings, one question we have to ask, or this is the thesis of the whole thing, why did the Jews start so strong under David, Solomon? Why did they end so weak? And the answer to Kings, I think at this point, the thesis should be really clear. Their hearts strayed from God Almighty. They didn't give God their heart, mind, and soul. They went after all the things of the world. They went around the Ashtaros, the Moloks, the Chemoshes. The, any God they could find under the, the, than Yahweh, they went after that God. There's a curiosity there that didn't serve them in life. And so if you don't learn by having someone that is mature and wise tell you to not touch the stove you can just touch the stove but you're going to learn it's hot either way you can either listen to the wisdom or you can learn it for yourself and the jewish people being good and stubborn like they are so so be it they're going to touch the stove and they they just did it again and again and again they didn't obey and they embraced other gods they didn't repent even though god gave them warnings finally god is fair and patient he sent warnings, he gave examples, and finally God is just. And I don't think there's any, this is still the God we serve today. He is fair, he is patient, gives everybody every chance possible. I don't think it's an accident that we hang out as a group of people. Like God puts you with the right people to help you in your life. 
And that's why it's so important that we're looking for ways to do that because we're here to bless one another. And God gives us every chance to live the lives that he's called us out to live. If you want to truly be defiant, you can go back to Egypt. You can go back to the world. Or you can fight the will of God and end up having it destroy you. Either way, you're going to end up with nothing. It's vanity. Or you can serve the Lord God and there are paths of mercy even through the worst of times. And I think the writer of Kings is trying to show that. At the end of the day, we had kings all over the place. Some of them served God, some of them didn't. And God kept his end of the bargain at every step. And finally, when we're removed for the land, more than he bargained for, in grace and in mercy, he does everything he can do to protect the people of Israel. Instead of just wiping them off the planet, he protects and guards them and gives them a shelter. Because that's the God we serve. So there you go. That's the book of Kings. We're not going to go straight to Chronicles because I feel like we just did it. Um, we're going to go off and do the prophets of the northern tribes. So before Israel fell, what warnings did they get? And so I've never taught through one of the prophetic books. So I'm totally juiced up to get into the research on this. Um, but we will dig in next week. I don't even know which one yet. So likely Amos or Hosea or something like that. But I'll send out a note so you can read ahead and be with it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your warnings. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that we just have no excuses, Lord. You've given us every chance, every opportunity. We have full revelation in the word of God. Um, and Lord, it's on us if we don't read it, if we don't pay attention to it, we don't understand what it says. Uh, that says something about our hearts. So when we're supposed to give our whole heart, mind, and soul, it starts by knowing what you said. So Lord, I just thank you for the blessing of brothers and sisters that are going through the word chapter by chapter. I thank you for the blessing of fellowship that you've given us. And Lord, I just thank you for the remnant, those people that are interested in what you have to say. I thank you for the believers that are staying true to the God that they serve. And there's thousands of them out there, Lord. I just thank you for the whole body of the church across different fellowships and different organizations. And Lord, I know there are people that have their hearts aligned to you all over the place. Lord, I thank you for those. I know that they don't always make the news. They don't always get the kingship or the throne or fall into leadership positions. But Lord, I know you have your remnant. You have your people that faithfully serve you. So I pray for your protection, your guardianship, even though we face times of trouble, Lord, may you serve us and, and protect us in the way that you protected and, and cared for your, your children in ages past. Lord, we love you. Help us to serve you with our whole heart, mind, and soul. Not make the mistakes that these people made. Uh, and to heed the warnings that you've given and to give you our attention, our eyes, and our ears. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.